Our text for this morning comes from Exodus 20. We will be looking at verses 8 through 11. And we are continuing our series on the Ten Commandments. And we are, um, this is the fourth commandment. We've looked really at the first table only, which focuses on our relationship to God most, most clearly. And then the second half will focus on our relationship to our fellow man. And, and just something to think about, what we're trying to solve is this question. What is the role of the moral law for a Christian? What, is, what role does it play? And a thought I had uh, this week was just the sun and the sky is beautiful. We need it. It's alive. It, it keeps us living. But you can't look at it, right? Or it will blind you. But with Christ, we have a special set of lenses that now we can actually look at the law if the sun is the law. And we can actually gaze upon it and, and see more of the depths of the law. So if you are in Christ, there's actually a freedom that allows you to gaze and be opened up by the law, that God is gracious. And the reason is, it doesn't condemn you if you are in Christ, right? So that's good news. So now we get to dive in and, and discover all the beauties and the riches in the law. But I will warn you, uh, your flesh will be trying to condemn you as we read even this passage. So be ready for that, okay? So we will look at Exodus 20, verses 7, or excuse me, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourners who, sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Let's pray. God, we give you praise that you created the earth and the heavens by the word of your mouth and that you rested. And Lord, you've given us rest. Lord, you've given us rest from work, but you've given us ultimately rest in your Son, Jesus. And I pray this morning as um, your children we would see the beauty and the graciousness of this calling to slow down, to Sabbath, to worship, to rest. Lord, I can't think of a generation that has needed it more than ever, and yet we are a people who resist it. So I pray you would help us to see the graciousness and the beauty of this call and this commandment. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. This is my first sermon to preach on a Sabbath, content, uh, on the subject of the Sabbath, and if, if it comes up again... I will just promise from this point forward that I will always open up with the illustration of chariots of fire. Is everybody okay with that? Now, maybe there are some of you here who don't know about chariots of fire. It was a movie in 1981, a low-budget film, a British film, that ended up winning four Oscars. Goodness, I almost said Emmys, though. I almost said Emmys. Oscars, including Best Picture. It's the story of Eric Little. I've been back and forth on how to pronounce it, but I heard Alistair Begg, who's Scottish, say Eric Little, and it's Eric Little himself is Scottish, so that's how you say it. And Eric Little is a runner. There's actually two characters that highlights. Um, the other character is Harold Abrams, and they both are runners. Eric, Eric Little is heading into missions in the future. He's doing this running for the Olympics in 1924, and he wins the gold medal for the 400, 
but he sits out on the Sabbath day for one of the events he could have easily won. And so it's this really great story about the Sabbath, and it highlights the life of Eric Little, and he went on to be a missionary in China. But I want to read you two quotes to kind of juxtapose the two worldviews of these men. Harold Abrams says this in the movie, Contentment. I am 24 and I have never known it. I am forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is I am chasing. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? That's what he's living for. Listen later in the movie to what Eric Little says to his sister. She's been asking him about his commitment to missions. And here's what he explains to her. I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And what you have there is two worldviews. One in which is trying to be justified by self, and one who sees himself justified by God and seeking his pleasure in what he does. And as we approach the Sabbath and this discussion, it's critical we keep those two separate. Because you, regardless of your view on the Sabbath, you can do it to justify yourself, right? Whether you think, I should rest and worship, sometimes we do that to justify ourselves. We have our rules we keep. And some of us run from the rules, again, to justify ourselves. And the goal this morning is to see what is God calling us to do to find the rest and the restoration that the Sabbath offers. So we'll look at that, we'll start by looking at rest, actually the work of rest, then the rest of work, and finally, restoration. Okay, so what is rest? Um, that seems obvious, right? That's something we don't have to talk about. Everyone knows what rest is, except I don't think you do. To quote a song, like to say. Um, in other words, I think what we mean is leisure. Whatever I feel like doing is rest, right? But I would argue that rest is actually somewhat work. If you want to see the proof of this, ask a four-year-old to take a nap. Uh, I remember when I was of that age, I hated naps. We all remember that. I don't know why. The four-year-old starts to weep and tell you how they don't need a nap as they melt down before your very eyes. And so there's something in us that resists the call to rest. And, and though leisure is, excuse me, though uh, entertainment and leisure is restful, I think there's something in rest that's even more profound, even more difficult for us. And that is sometimes we have to take the hard pill of not doing what we feel like doing to slow down. Does that make sense? To rest, to actually take it easy. There's a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. I'm going to take a, a jaunt and then I'll bring it back to where we are on rest. The book Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman, it's a classic. He's talking about how, and I think I've talked about this here before, how we've lost our ability, for example, in politics to hear on television what, what they used to hear, say, in the 1860s with like debates and, and politicians, etc. So, for example, Lincoln Douglas had a series of debates. Was that 1850-ish politician people? Okay. They would go to a town, and the, and the townspeople would come out, and the first candidate would talk for four hours. Then they would break for lunch. Then the next candidate gets four hours. They break for dinner. Then they would both come back for a rebuttal of each other for two hours, and then it's bedtime. That was a typical way the politicians debate, or at least in that debate system. We would not, listen, I don't want to get into politics, 
But if I could find the person who is the most passionate political person in this room, and you told me your candidate, I will guarantee you, you don't want to hear that person for four hours. There's not one guy or girl running right now that any of us want to hear for more than 20 minutes. And that's a long time. Like, it seems like every debate, you're like, oh, again, really? Click, you know. What is it? And here's what Postman says. It's not the candidates, though, maybe a little bit. It's us. So television has created in us, in new media, an inability to even focus for very long. And part of what the, this, the research behind that is this. When things, uh, here's what happens on television. The environment changes, and it creates in us an alarm, okay? I was sitting, reading a book this week, and I, 20 feet away, I saw something. I looked, it was a spider. 20 feet away, I was like, really? I ran over, and I killed it, then I went back to reading. But I thought, man, that's amazing. I saw that spider. And then I remembered this Neil Postman stuff. We're built this way. Whenever your environment changes, it gets all of your attention and your focus. It draws you away. And so media resources have figured that out. Have you ever watched an old movie? And you thought, change your camera angle. Come on, it's been like 12 seconds. Just another angle. Or baseball. You know, maybe the boringest sport to watch on television, or at least used to be. I hope I'm not offending anybody. Tom, I apologize. I know but now it's like, okay, there's the guy, you know, the batter and the pitcher, but they'll change camera angles like 42 times per pitch. You know, batter, pitcher, catcher, first baseman, pretty girl in the stands, back to the manager. It's like, and then the pitch. We need that to sustain our attention anymore. And yet rest requires us to not do that. And so it's painful. Rest is painful, yet we need it more than ever. But it's interesting that in this commandment, you would think they probably loved the command to rest. They probably found that very easy. But yet God has to tell them very clearly, you have to stop. One day a week, you guys have to stop. And historians, there have been countless attempts to try to find other cultures who also obeyed the Sabbath. But from what I've read, and I will stand to be corrected by those out there that might have a little bit more experience than me, they have not found another culture who obeyed or even followed a concept of Sabbath before Israel. So it's not in our DNA as human beings to want to stop, to want to rest. And so that's what we're going to kind of dig into. Why do we need to be told to rest? Why is it so difficult to want to do this? Even when the op opportunity seems to be present in our culture. It's hard to believe that there was a day and time that there was no day off, right? That everyone just worked day after day after day. And now we take the fact that we have Saturday and Sunday off for granted, and we just keep busy. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this. To grasp the Sabbath and to grasp how to get that rest, we're going to look at two things. I've already given the outline, but we're going to look at how to restore work to its proper location. So we have to talk about work before we talk about rest, and then how restoration would actually work in light of that view of work. Is that confusing? Work, restoration. We don't have, if we don't have both of those in proper view, we'll lose both of them. So, today is the Sabbath day. Every one of you is here. So that's a really good job. I just, we could do a clap like Tina got earlier, but everyone here is so far obeying the Sabbath. You've all taken the day off work somehow. You all have ended up here, whether you want to be here or not, and we're celebrating the Sabbath. But what are you going to do after church? Most of us, most people... I'm not going to put myself in either camp because I've got to you know, keep my anonymity here. 
will just go and do anything they can to numb themselves to what's coming tomorrow, right? I don't want to go back. How can I numb it? Uh, high schoolers have put off homework, so about 10.30 they'll wake up and go, I've got that thing due. They've been numbing themselves since Friday at 2.30 about school. Some of you, on the other hand, are workaholics, and you go, I can't wait to get back to the office and start hammering away at email or something productive. But both of those two extremes really don't grasp the heart behind work. And what we want to talk about for just a few moments is that human beings are made to work. This is how we're built. I remember hearing a pastor say years ago, and it seemed like news to me, but it was this. The fall, Adam and Eve eating the fruit, falling from grace, right? Sin enters the world. Did not create work. It created the hatred of work. So even though the toil becomes harder, as God clearly tells them in Genesis 3, a lot of that increased difficulty of toil is the fact that now we kind of hate it. We want to have freedom. We want to go do what we want to do. There's a bit of unbelief involved as well. There's a tendency to not think, or there's a tendency to think, if I have to work at something, then it defines me, and maybe God isn't good. And there's an unbelief there. Where would I find that in the Scripture? The story of the talents. You all know the story. There are three people selected. Jesus tells the parable. One gets five talents. Talent is a weight of of money. The second person gets two talents, three talents. Someone correct me. Two, thank you. Oh, it's my son. I was all a ploy. And the final person gets one talent. Well, when the master returns, what happens? The guy that was given five talents turned it into ten. And the one that was given two turned it into four. But the one that was given one talent buried the talent. And I have heard that said countless times in this way. So, what is your talent? What are you good at? Go multiply it. And that's not a bad application at all. But the real application of that parable is what the servant who buried the talent says. The master's not happy when he finds out he buried the talent. He says, why did you do it? And the the guy says, I know you to be a hard man, toiling where you do not reap. You know, you're a, in other words, you're a slave driver. And so I was afraid of you. So I buried the talent to protect myself. We see God in that light, and our work reflects that. And if that's how you view work, then work, here's a good, here's a good litmus test. Do you enjoy God as you're working? Do you, as Eric Little says, feel the presence of God? Do you feel the, um, God's pleasure as you do the work God has called you to do. And not just your vocation. See, it's easy to say, well, that'll be great when I finally become an architect, but right now I hate making sandwiches at the sub shop or whatever, or cleaning toilets. But it's no matter what you do, you're called to do it for the glory of God. And I'll be the first to confess, that's not always my view. My wife should be chuckling right now. We had chore day yesterday, so I was exposed really uh, boldly on chore day. Like, oh, you know, I don't want to do chores. And then I finally got over it. And then the boys, I don't want to, sorry, I'm calling everyone out. It was chore day. But here's the secret to doing chores well. When you finally don't care about when you finish, when you finally don't care about um, if I can get this behind me, I can do this, and you just get locked in on the actual task. Psychologists call that flow. When, when, when a person experiences flow, they get so locked in on what they're doing, they produce great work. Have you ever heard of that concept? Look it up. It's really cool. 
Uh, you'll see this with surgeons. You'll see this with mountain climbers. But what they began to notice was even people in ordinary jobs will experience that state of psych a psychological bliss where they're focused on what they're doing so much. And, and the result is this, better work, better productivity, and energy. But what's interesting is it all really stems from a person no longer thinking what they're doing is beneath them. They get so locked in it that they love it. There was one guy that worked on an assembly line, and as, as he just said, I, I just found myself almost competing with myself and enjoying the process so much. I know it's crazy. But he found himself loving it, and time just flew by, and he was the best employee in the plant. And so they began researching why that happened. Well, how does Christ give us that? Ephesians 5, excuse me, Ephesians 6, 5 through 8. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. I've read this so many times, and just with our history in America, it's a very difficult passage. But yet, what Paul is saying, and listen, I'll go on, verse 6, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. There's something about being in Christ that frees me to accept whatever stage of life I'm in, for the moment or forever, and to be able to be freed up to do the task before me boldly. And I think everybody here would agree that, there, that in anything you do, if you did it with single-mindedness, it would be done really well. Whether you're painting a door, cleaning a toilet, or writing a proposal to buy a multi-billion dollar company, work is much better when we're not consumed with who we think we are and trying to prove ourselves and wondering how we're going to look. In other words, doing it for the Lord. Being freed by Christ to care about our work. Now, what does this have to do with Sabbath? In Exodus, he says, do your work six days, right? Six days you're going to do your work. And then you're going to have a day off from work. And I think for people who struggle with workaholism and procrastination or some mixture of those, that doesn't make any sense. What would you say to that? My work's never done, right? There has to be this sense of finiteness to work. Um, I'm going to read, I'm going to make one more comment on work, then we'll move to the restoration part. I'm re uh, there's a book on procrastination I read some years ago. I never finished all of it. it um, and, and the author d does this amazing thing. He compares workaholics with procrastinators and says, here's how they're similar. Okay? And, and you, it has that ring of sort of antinomians and legalists sharing more in common, or said a different way, the older brother and the younger brother in Luke 15 really being more similar. You think a workaholic and a procrastinator would be polar opposites, but listen to these similarities. They see themselves as always burdened by incomplete work and undeserving of rest. They think of their lives as being on hold and hope that someday they might get to a point where they can enjoy rest. Both view human beings as lazy and in need of discipline to create pressure for, the, for motivation. Both use negative self-talk. A workaholic would use negative self-talk as much as a procrastinator. This last one really, I think, rings, all of them ring true in some ways. Both maintain negative attitudes toward work, seeing work as infinite and insatiable. In other words, never-ending. So the procrastinator goes, why would I even start? That thing will never finish. I'm not going to touch it. The workaholic says the same thing, but just toils at it 
relentlessly and never lets it go. But the gospel says you're free to take rest. And it's because you're not defined by your work. You're defined by Christ. And so now we can actually see our work as coming from God and we do it and we're no longer worried about what it it reveals about me, but we're simply doing it for the glory of the Lord. And our work actually gets better. Right? So if you are a workaholic or you are a procrastinator, either one, you need rest. You need restoration, right? So let's talk about the Sabbath now and restoration. Um, we are, so we are bad at doing this. I mean, I would, I would love to do this survey. How many of you think you're really good at Sabbath rest? Right? As a young man, I was at Walden Bookstore. Remember Walden? This is before, like, Books a Trillion and all those awesome places. You know, Walden, then you went to B. Dalton. Back and forth, there was no internet. Right? I found this book on restoring old cars, and I bought it. I have never worked on a car. I don't know why. I still I, I loved it. And I remember thinking, someday, I'm going to go to some junkyard. I'm going to do like the Karate Kid thing and find the old car. And remember the yellow car that was restored? I want to do something like that. But there was just something in me that thought, the fact you could go to a junkyard, pull out this thing, and after some period of time, which for me was probably like a month, you know, in my head, you have this beautiful, awesome, restored, better than new vehicle. Now, I never did that. I never got into car restoration. But then I, I felt, I think the same thing about houses. I love the idea of houses being restored. So you love these shows on TV. You watch the restoration happen. But I would say this. I did get into a job about restoration, right? We are, Schaefer would say, glorious ruins. Every one of us. There's a way we were made to be that has been ruined by the fall, and we are being restored. Justification is. That's what the Christian life is. We are growing in holiness, right? We're growing in Christ-likeness. We don't always see it. You can't always measure the steps, but that's our longing. And, and when you come to the Sabbath day, the question I would ask is, if you don't take rest on the Sabbath, if you don't slow down, then when are you actually see, seeing that restoration happen? You're like me, buying that book. I'm looking for a, uh, the Psalms as I talk to you. You're buying the book on restoration, and you like the idea, and it's really neat, and it sits on the shelf like your Bible, right? Or like your great plans of sanctification. And so the, in the Scriptures, we find that the only way for that restoration to happen is when we are walking with our Heavenly Father. Psalm 23, everyone knows, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That's, that's actual stuff happening. He's not, the, David's not saying, that's what the book I read told me. And I, bet, and I bet it's true. David is saying, my experience is that when I am with my Heavenly Father, I am like a sheep who went from being completely lost and anxious and nervous to calm. To being a sheep who wanted everything, constantly wanting stuff, to having no more wants because I'm with my Father. I'm being led beside still waters and green pastures and my soul is being restored. Is that your view of the Sabbath? Is that what you want? 
Is that even an expectation you have or a goal? This morning I was reading Psalm 51. I want to just give you another Psalm of David. Listen to what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. We know this psalm is written in response to his sin with Bathsheba and, and, and murder of, of, of Uriah. But at the same time, it's probably, I think it's a liturgy of David's repentance. And the Sabbath is that day of, of the week where we can finally stop doing all the normal stuff we do and spend some time with our Heavenly Father. We do that corporately. Right? We're spending time with one another. We're fellowshipping. But we're also spending time corporately with our Father. But he calls us to spend privately some time with him to be restored. And I guess the question I would ask myself and everyone in this room is, are we taking that time? Is that even hopeful for us? Is that even something we actually want? So you continue in Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. He says, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Do you see the Sabbath as a time you can actually be honest about the sin in your heart? And say, Lord, I see my sin. Um, I, I see it and, I, and I'm asking that you would come change my heart. Come renew me. Come, come build me up. This week, we just started taking the Stillwater paper and there was a story just yesterday of this person who was incarcerated two or three times because, and the root cause of each incarceration was chemical, so alcohol, or I'm going to say the word, I had to actually look up the opioids. Did I say it right? I got a couple nods. All right. So he was addicted. And the judge finally said to him at this third or fourth trial, before he was going to book him away for a long time, um, I'll give you an option to go on this new program. There's a drug you can take. This, this is a true story. And that drug, if you take this drug and we kind of work with you, we should take away the cravings of alcohol and other addictions you have. It won't cure you, but it will take away that sort of longing for it, that hunger. And, and there are people, some people have not done as great on this program, but this guy has become clean. Now, I hesitate saying that because I'm not advocating a product to get us off of addiction, but I am suggesting that when your addictions lose their power, right, when they start to lose their power, all of a sudden he said, I could begin to focus on, like, honest to goodness, paying taxes and getting a job, and loving my family. In other words, the normal stuff of life becomes more clear because I'm no longer hungering and thirsting after all these other things. And I would, I would say on the Sabbath day, and in general Sabbath rest, is coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, here are the affections of my heart, and they are aimed at everything but you. Will you take the power out of my affections? Will you put my affections onto you, Jesus? I remember a pastor years ago said to a youth group, Imagine a glass of water, and you were thirsty, and you took a sip, but it tastes like gasoline. It was gasoline. You would never touch it again. The Sabbath is a day to pray, Lord, I'm longing for things that I know are gasoline or poisonous. Change my heart. And you're pulling in closely with the Father, walking with Him. In the end of Psalm 51, he, he just breaks out into this doxology of, of wanting to lead worship and teaching others and being in ministry. And being with the sacred throng. That is what Sabbath is. Sabbath is rest from all the things that are wooing you. And it's taking the time to walk with Christ. 
and to see that Jesus is your actual Sabbath rest. So here's my question for everybody in this room. Is Jesus your ultimate rest? Or, if not, what are you looking forward to? What right now, what thing, what reality, what magic pill would you need to all of a sudden feel restful and at ease? And if it's not Jesus, you have to ask yourself, what is it? What are you pursuing? What is it you're after? Is it Jesus? Is it abiding in him? Is it time with him? So practically, this is the hardest part about a sermon on the Sabbath. What do you do? What what are the practical things? I'm honestly not going to tell you what you should do on the Sabbath because it's not my job. That's your responsibility with the Father. I will tell you some parameters, and here they are. Here are the two extremes. On one extreme, a lot of people think, I don't have to even consider this at all. That's archaic. I'm in Jesus. I'll just do whatever I feel like doing. Some weeks I'll be busier. Some weeks I'll be less busy. Who cares? On the other extreme are people who would say, oh, no, no, I wish Ryan would have invited me up just now. I would love to tell everybody what to do. First of all, and I've had people do this in my life. You can get gasoline but from the self-serve kind, where there's nobody working behind the booth, that kind of thing. I'm not going to ridicule either one, but I will say the best advice I've ever heard on the Sabbath is this. You need to struggle with the concept of Sabbath rest. Does that make sense? You need to actually struggle. You should never reach a place where you say, oh, I know exactly what I do with that. See, it's interesting, with all the commandments, last week we talked about not taking the Lord's name in vain, and if I had told you before the sermon, you would have said, I know exactly what that's talking about. After we discussed it, that became more complex, didn't it? But we come to Sabbath, and that seems really confusing. What do you do? And yet when we read it and study it, it becomes more simple and more clear, but you have to work at it through the Lord. And ask yourself, what should I be doing on the Sabbath? And is it Sunday, maybe for you, if you work on Sundays, it's another day you pull back and you, and you walk with the Lord and you, and you examine your life before Him. But restoration and Sabbath rest will only come when you take the time to worship with God's people and then privately walk with the Lord and seek Him first in everything you're doing. Does that make sense? Maybe? Should I give a list of uh, do's and don'ts? Don't shoot me, buddy. So I'm very concerned to sit here and give you do's and don'ts. But I do want to just say this. Do draw close to Jesus. Do walk with him. Do open your heart to him. Both here publicly and privately in your own private worship. Bring that in. And if you have never even, if you've never left church and thought one more minute on the sermon or one more minute on anything we talked about, today's a great day. Take Take 10 minutes this afternoon. Close the door. Go for the go out for a walk. Open Psalm 51 and read it and pray, Jesus, show me you. Draw me closer to you. Show me my sin. Show me that you love me. Because we are talking now about a father loving their child. It is freedom. Let's pray. Father, we are so unsure of how to rest that we just start plugging in our phones and getting into conversations and doing anything we can to distract us. And Lord, I am guilty. 
It's easy as a pastor to say, well, I work on the Sabbath. But Father, we all have to take time. We long to take time to walk with you, to spend time with you, to worship you corporately and privately. Father, I pray that you would send your spirit to open our eyes to to see what it would look like individually for each of us to this very day pray and, and, and expose our hearts to you in a trustful way knowing that you love us, asking that you would take away the, the hunger and the thirst for other things, that you would be our food, that you would be our sustenance, Jesus, that we would see that our spirit is longing for you and we keep plugging it full of other things. But Lord, that is only possible, Holy Spirit, if you open our eyes and you show us how to do that. Yet at the same time, Lord, we have to take those times to walk with you, to pray to you, to sing to you, to journal, to to go out into nature and, and just think on you and meditate on your scripture. So I pray that Grace Presbyterian Church, Father, would be a place where people are restored and what you're doing in our lives. That we may then bring others in to be restored as well. In your name we pray. Amen.